Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Here we've been giving a lot of health information on how to be proactive in our health. Let's look at our health system. It seems to be challenged, particularly by chronic diseases. Our system is excellent in acute situations and surgery, but it seems that a large amount of our resources are going to chronic diseases. Six out of ten adults have a chronic disease, and four in ten have two or more chronic diseases. New statistics are saying that children over 50% have a chronic disease, whereas years ago it was only 18%. A large part of our health costs are due to this. But health is a continuum of trajectories on different pathways. It's not that when your fasting blood sugar reaches 126, you have diabetes. Here's your T-shirt and you're a member of the club. No. A Kaiser study showed that for each point above 84, our fasting blood sugar is, there's a 6% increased risk of developing diabetes. Heart disease is not a statin deficiency, and depression is not a Prozac deficiency. These drugs only treat the symptoms. They change the biomarkers, but do not change the underlying trajectory of the disease. Hence, our health system is sometimes referred to as disease management or sick care. We have always proposed it's best to look at underlying causes for disease, which usually includes inflammation, oxidative stress, and round up the usual characters. Is our system working? What can we do to improve it? What can we do to measure where we are on this disease continuum and what we can do about it? Here to answer some of these questions is Dr. Thomas Lewis. He holds a PhD from MIT in continuing education from the Harvard School of Public Health. Since his father came down with Alzheimer's disease 20 years ago, he has dedicated his life to determine how to better predict Alzheimer's and chronic diseases in general. Working with key clinicians at the Harvard Medical School, his team developed an advanced AI-driven algorithms to predict a person's mortality risk in both the near and distant future. Part of this algorithm is the predictive capability for major chronic diseases. He has coined this diagnostic protocol the four dimensions of health because measurements span four dimensions, risk, other determinants of health, physiology, pathology, and then leading to the final disease state. All these measurements are designed to properly place anyone on a health disease continuum. The final feature of his program are robust protocols to help a person reduce their disease risk and burden, and the success of which is measured across the same four dimensions. Lastly, he designed this program with both individuals and populations in mind because all of the testing is widely available, often online, and very affordable. His continued mission is to build up this testing into the standard of care as replacement for the existing sick care approach with this new true health care approach. Welcome, Dr. Lewis. Thank you, Dr. Downs. Great to be on your show. I really appreciate the opportunity to tell tell the story of chronic health. How about telling the story? Excellent. You know, we, uh, our system has failed. And you gave those great statistics about 
the CDC indicating that 90% of healthcare costs are chronic disease related. Uh, six in 10 American adults have at least one chronic condition and children aren't that far behind. So we're heading in the wrong direction. And Rand Corporation projects that chronic diseases are not under control. There is a really interesting study, it was actually published uh, publicly in the Wall Street Journal, that showed that cardiovascular deaths have gone up from 2011 to 2016 by 4.3% overall in the U.S. And then in certain areas like Louisville, Kentucky, and three, three cities in Colorado, who would have thunk it because it's such a healthy area, that cardiovascular disease deaths have gone up by double digit, uh, 20%. So we really have a problem. You know, like you said, it's not a statin deficiency. It's not a blood pressure medication deficiency. It's the underlying causes. And so, you know, we have a great acute care system. Like you said, if you need surgery, you need to go in the hospital, you have sepsis, you know, intravenous antibiotics, something like that works great. But these chronic diseases that incubate and smolder are, are really just managed. And when you do that, it does not change your mortality outcome, your longevity. And more importantly, your healthy longevity is significantly diminished if you're just managing disease symptoms. So if you want to live a long, healthy life, you have to change the way you're interfacing with the healthcare system because the healthcare system is not working to improve your healthy longevity. So that's, that's really what we're working to, to fix. And it, it's really quite simple. Um, we, we have a very simple but I think provocative statement that we say about our system. We're not a disease prevention or wellness program, and we're not a disease management program. So what are we? We're strictly a disease reversal program. So someone out there might be saying, well, I don't have a disease. Well, things smolder. So for example, in Alzheimer's, my specialty, people, young people, 20s and 30s, who die from a, an accident, like a car crash or something, when they do an autopsy on the brain, many already show the early signs of the placking that's attributable to Alzheimer's. So that disease is incubating over 20, 30, 40, even 50 years. And my mentor at Harvard, who was an ophthalmologist, you might say, what's an ophthalmologist doing in this business? Well, the eye is an actually uh, embryological outcropping of the brain. And since the eye is transparent, you can see the vasculature way better than you, you can with any other technique through the eye. So we can see, he, he could see cause and effect in his treatment. So you can see, for example, manifestations of Alzheimer's in the eye 10, even 20 years before someone has actual symptoms. So that's what we have to embrace. We can't react and wait for something to happen. We have to be more proactive. So the, the provocative statement is that um, there's no such thing as prevention. We're all on a health disease continuum. And what you want to do is slide in the right direction down that continuum, not the wrong direction. And diagnoses are just really artificial, human-made lines of demarcation on that continuum where suddenly 
you're diagnosed with a condition. And you said it very, very well in diabetes. Diabetes is one of the few diseases where the continuum concept is actually understood to some degree with prediabetes and diabetes. And then there's also people who are insulin exogenous or external insulin dependent diabetic. They're further down the continuum. But then there are people that are truly insulin sensitive. So there's four steps on the continuum. So, but that's true in every disease. Cancer is no exception. Heart disease, autoimmune conditions, Alzheimer's. We all lie on the continuum, and the sooner we can detect these things, the better chance we have of pushing you back down that continuum. And, that, and that's the whole point of, of what we're trying to do. Better measurement, um, better education. Uh, the, these things make a big difference in healthcare. Okay, so tell us a little more about your system. I mean, oh, for, first of all, um, you made a comment at one point about, you know, the more we spend, the less we live. I mean, does the cost for our health insurance translate into better health? <laughs> yes. I, I decided, Susan, I wouldn't just uh, run for an hour. I could run for several hours. But, you know, when you look at um, the statistics, you know, the, the American Heart Association calls the French. 55 million people, the French paradox, because they eat the most saturated fats of any society, yet they have one-third to one-quarter the heart disease that Americans have. But when you look at the real global statistics in developed nations and the organization that tracks healthcare and other parameters for developed nations is called the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, they show that of the 36 developed nations, America is the conundrum, and this is why. We spend two and a half times more for health care than the average of all the other 35 nations, and our life expectancy is two and a half years less. So it's a very clear correlation in America. The more we spend, the shorter we live. There's an interesting study that was published in a major journal, peer-reviewed, but the New York Times Well blog uh, talked about it a few years ago. And what it simply said is that when there are major cardiovascular conferences, like the American Heart Association or whatever, all the big fancy professors in the teaching hospitals all around the country go to, these, go to that convention. And there's been a study that shows that mortality from cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular interventions goes down when the American Heart Association and other heart conventions are in play. And the reason is the, the fancy professors do more fancy, risky interventions. And guess what? They're not working. They're not working at all. So, you know, the OECD is, is very interesting. Another one that I like to fall back on, a uh, gentleman at Oxford, Paul Clayton, did a very interesting study years ago and published four papers on it. And what he showed is that mid-Victorian Brits, so 1860, 1870 England, if you survive the plagues and epidemics to reach the age of six, you outlived British people today. And now British people outlive Americans by about two and a half, three and a half years. So the mid-Victorians outlived outlived Americans by four or five years, 1870. Now, that's because we, we 
you know, I lived in a little town in um, New Hampshire and they, for a number of years, and they had a 700-page volume on the history of, of the little town I was in, Sullivan, New Hampshire. And in the farmhouse I lived in, Davis Farm, they had 10 children, and only half of them made it to the age of six. So when you, have, when you include zero to six mortality in your longevity studies or statistics, it totally skews it. But look at, um, I look at the, some of the most famous people in America. John Adams lived till 90. Uh, ben Franklin lived till 84. And then you have George Washington. He died at the age of 67. But we all know that he had chronic inflammation because he had his famously bad teeth. So these are the kinds of things that um, really affect your health. So, so what, what we do is, like you said at the, at the beginning, we put people through measurement on four continuums. A risk and determinants of health continuum. So that is, you know, your, that considers your hereditary situation, your pre-birth status, your mother and father's health, your risk factors from early childhood to where you are today uh, and what go- what's going on with your life. And we give a numeric value for that that we convert to a letter grade. So anybody who joins my program are, are going to get a letter risk grade from A to F. And people don't like getting an F, but it, it's a serious thing. And we've shown in papers we've published that if you can improve that risk grade, your health improves in many ways, many, many measurable ways, both from diagnoses to physiological markers. So that's, a, that's really a continuum one. The second continuum, which I spend most of my time on with participants, I have six doctors that work with me. Um, so the doctors call the, the people that work with us patients. So some are PhD. I call them participants in our program just to stay within the swim lanes. But so I spend most of my time with participants because although determinants of health and, and risks are important, they're somewhat subjective, however actionable. But the physiological markers are objective. You know, there was a book written by someone I reached out to a while ago, and I love the title, Your Blood Doesn't Lie. And mainly I do blood tests. So what we do are tests that overlap with the standard of care, but also tests that don't overlap with the standard of care. And so we have an extensive panel that I run on everybody. It's 55 biomarkers. But more importantly, it's how we look at the value of the marker from a risk perspective. So if you go to lab tests uh, online or, or Mayo Clinic or WebMD and look at how they determine the so-called reference intervals or reference ranges and you read it carefully, realize it's just a scientific measurement, your physiological health. It's actually sort of a statistical measurement of all the sick people who are going in and getting their labs test. You don't want to be compared to that. So we've developed a whole new scale of normal based on a very simple thing. Does that marker show a statistically validated increase in early mortality, early death, based on more than one peer-reviewed study? And at what level does that first inkling of early mortality rear its ugly head? 
And that's the beginning for an individual marker of the continuum of objective risk for that marker. But then since all our labs are evaluated that way, we create a a composite score we call your chronic disease temperature. And that's for the physiological labs. And really what your chronic disease temperature is, is your placement on the physiological health disease continuum using a very robust algorithm that we developed uh, with my Harvard medical colleagues and myself being an MIT PhD. And, and it's worked out very well. When we, it, it's, it becomes very simple for people to understand, actually. We, do a, we did a lot of work behind the scenes, crunching the numbers and reading thousands of papers and doing um, AI-driven searches on millions. But at the end of the day, let's just say you want to lose weight. You weigh 195 pounds and you want to weigh 165 pounds. You have a target, 195 to 165. We give you your chronic disease temperature using the same scale as, you know, when you take your child's temperature, 98.6 being optimal and 105.6 being you're really chronically sick. Um, And so, like, if you get 102, it's very simple. You want to be closer to 98.6. So now... This type of measurement eliminates fads, you know, fad diets, fad supplements, fad interventions, um, pharmaceutical interventions that don't um, improve your health, but just mask symptoms. Uh, You know, prednisone will cause those markers to go up. For example, uh, when you suppress the immune system with a steroid like that, so you actually get worse on these drugs, but your goal is to lower this single physiological number to as low as you practically can get it. And, you know, my mom died when she was uh, 93, and we measured her health. Her her labs were all all relatively normal. Um, You know, let's let's say around 99, 99.5, something like that, which I would consider extraordinarily healthy. And when you look at... um, reported longevity, there there are well-documented people into their um, hundred teens. Uh, One reported lady in France lived to 121, supposedly well-documented, but there's enough people close to that. So really, in my opinion, if you're at 98.6 on my chronic disease temperature scale your entire life, you have an opportunity to live to 120. Moses lived to 120. You know, there's a lot of references in the modern era to that kind of longevity. But everybody thinks, oh, if I live to 100, I'm going to be on tubes and all kinds of stuff and be in a wheelchair. That's actually been proven wrong. Susan, uh, I showed the study the other night to your group from National Geographic 2013. The title of the article was uh, 100 Candles. And the National Geographic researcher traveled the world for six years to find the holy genetic grail for in centenarians for longevity. And guess what? He didn't come back with one. He, one of the things he came back with was, you know, the environment that people were living in. And he said, 25% is luck. And I'm saying 25% isn't luck. 25% is measuring and objectively understanding why you have risk. But what that study pointed out really importantly is that if you, die at the age of 80, so you live till 80 only, you have 19 years of declining health, statistically. So if you're going to die at 80, you're already probably 
not feeling that great at 61. If you live to 100, 100 plus, you only have nine years of declining health. So you live 20 years longer, but when you look at how that, um, that declining health escalates in what's called an asymptote, you know, uh, a log linear relationship, you actually have 30 years of additional health span. So if anybody thinks it's not worth living longer, they're thinking that they're going to be in the hospital with all kinds of tubes. But if you're living robust and you're not going to the hospital and you're healthy like my mother was, who essentially never went to the hospital except for a broken hip, then, you know, she was swimming in our pool in, in August and she died in October. I think that's everybody's goal to live as long at, in a healthy state as you possibly can. So I would like to comment that the range values we have for our laboratory uh, tests are based on 95% of the individuals in the group. And a lot of these people in our country are not well. So these ranges are based on uh, an unhealthy population. So uh, what you're proposing is finding optimal values rather than uh, what the labs have. And the labs keep adjusting it because the uh, values keep getting worse, so they might change the outside ranges. But what particularly is interesting, when you talk about, you know, like you know, you've got these measurements of looking like uh, which, which labs are important and which disease it might play into. For example, CRP you thought was uh, very important, and uh, ESR with measures of inflammation and the RDW, I mean, you've got a whole chart, for example, looking at diabetes and which labs contribute to that. And those are pretty obvious, glucose, hemoglobin A1C, insulin, uh, glycerides, et cetera, heart disease risk, stroke disease, cancer, kidney, brain, pain, and respiratory. Can you talk about some of these measurements, for example, like the RDW, et cetera? Yeah, I'd love to talk about RDW. It's one of my favorite ones and some of the others. But, you know, we look at we look at inflammation, we look at immune health, we look at um, how your immune system is uh, being worked or overworked, and we look at clotting factors, and then we look at uh, hormone balance. Those are the kinds of things we look at. Um, so be- before I um, dive into RDW, I just want to say that even the 95% values for reference ranges in the standard of care, they don't even state what their outcome is. So we don't even know. It's, it's a very arbitrary endpoint, whereas our endpoint is very, very, very clear. Increase in early mortality. So I'll give you, um, let me just give white blood cell counts first, and then I'll, I'll dive right into RDW. But, you know, white blood cell counts, you look it up on Wikipedia, Mayo Clinic, anybody, white blood cells go up in response to toxicity or infections, mainly infections, and we all know that. Sepsis, your white blood cell counts go crazy. So the standard of care has a reference interval or reference range of 3,500 counts plus or minus to 11,000 counts plus or minus. What I've, see, what I've shown is that between 4,000 and 5,800, there's no increase in mortality, but at 6,000, there is. 6,000 with the upper limit in the standard of care is 11,000. That's a huge difference. And, and these aren't small studies. Let me give you an example. So on the white blood cell count, 
Um, the Nurses' Health Study and the Women's Health Initiative, 136,000 women studied prospectively. In other words, you, look, you do their health assessment today and you follow who's living, who's doing well, who's dying, what are they dying from, so on and so forth. But if you take two groups, one group of women with an average white blood cell count of 4,700 plus or minus, and another group at 6,700 plus or minus, and you follow them for six years, 50% more in the 6,700 group are dead. 50% more. Now, that's a relative statistic, but to those women, that's a big number. But more importantly, it just indicates that these people are not perfectly healthy. They are what I call the apparently well, and they don't have to die from a heart attack or a stroke. It's totally preventable. And, you know, our whole continuum theory shows that the further up the continuum you go, the harder it is to reverse, but it's never impossible. So let's look at RDW. RDW costs almost nothing to run, almost nothing, because it's part of a complete blood count with differential. One of the least expensive tests, it's, it's cheaper than a lipid test, but a lot of doctors don't do it, or they do their lipids instead, or they don't look at the RDW. So what is RDW? It's red blood cell distribution width. And I'll give you my sort of uh, uh, my, my population health explanation where I work with ladies and gentlemen in blue collar settings, some of them without even a, a high school education. So red blood cell distribution is how big your red blood cells are. Now, red blood cells last in your circulatory system for about four months, and they're constantly being replaced. And uh, the reason why you, your poop is brown is because you're expelling red blood cells on a continual basis, and they, it's excreted through your poop. And it's brown because your kidneys extract the iron and recirculate it, so the red blood cell without the iron goes from red to brown. Okay, but the red blood cell is born small and dies large in general. Okay, different conditions can affect that, but it's born small and dies large. Now, if your vessels are inflamed, then these physical structures, little red blood cell discs that are coursing through your capillaries are literally rubbing up against the inside tissue of that red blood cell. Now, if it's inflamed rather nice and smooth, that red blood cell gets inflamed and roughened up. I call it like a, uh, a frat party hazing situation. And so what happens is the red blood cells literally get larger and your red blood cell distribution width goes up. And it's extraordinarily interesting in the work I've done, and I published this, is that red blood cell distribution width goes up with CRP, which is C-reactive protein. Now, C-reactive protein is a marker, acute phase marker of inflammation that really is looking at inflammation right inside the endothelial tissue, which is the lining of your vessel. So guess what? CRP goes up, inflammation in the vessel goes up, red blood cell distribution width goes up. So it's a very, very poignant marker. Now, um, one of my modern mentors, Dr. Michael Carter, extraordinary functional medicine doctor, um, has us involved with the Black Health Trust, and we were talking to the advisory group. This is an organization formed by Dr. Randall Maxey to educate um, African-American citizens, and every citizen, really, 
on COVID risk. But we had a meeting with the uh, advisory board, 12 doctors, and one brave doctor stood up in the meeting on Zoom and said, we used to measure things like C-reactive protein and uric acid and fibrinogen, a clotting factor, uh, and homocysteine, but we don't do it anymore. And another doctor, brave doctor, chimed in and said, yeah, and we don't know what to do if they're elevated. Because, you know, since 1980, when the drug companies were allowed to contribute to medical school education, it's really, you learn physiology, but all the remediations are pharmaceutical-based. And so there's no pill to lower CRP. You know, Paul Ricker, chaired professor at Harvard, says Crestor will, but it's really a bad deal because the statin has so many bad side effects. The major one being an increase of heart disease risk by increasing diabetes. Very well published. Very well published. So diabetes risk goes up. Heart disease risk goes up. A diabetic dies of heart disease. It's really a death from metabolic syndrome, not cardiovascular disease. So it doesn't get attributed to the statin. So that's called... This is what um, uh, Samuel Clements called lies, damn lies, and then there are statistics. And, and you know, we, we try to tell the truth through our objective measurement. So that's RDW. Um, you know, fibrinogen, another marker that I love to, to run, extraordinarily inexpensive fibrinogen activity. And what fibrinogen is, it is a signal molecule, it's con- a protein that's circulating in your blood looking for cracks, holes, or fissures. So if you cut yourself and you're bleeding and you heal, your fibrinogen will be up. But if your blood cells are roughened and inflamed and you have a little bleeding gum, uh, uh, you know, your gums are bleed when, bleeding when you floss, your fibrinogen level will be above normal because you are in a constant state of repair of excess damage. So that's something that nobody wants to be in. You don't want to be in. And, and fibrinogen is also an indication of clotting factors, obviously, because uh, fibrinogen recruits fibrin to come in and, and repair the damage. So if, if you have something hemorrhagic, which means the, the vessel burst a little bit, so when, you're, when you floss and your gums bleed a little bit, that's literally a hemorrhagic event just like a stroke, but it's not in your brain, not in a vessel to the brain. It's a, a vessel in your gums, but it's the same process. So fibrin will come and heal that. So the bleeding stops. You don't bleed out, obviously. Um, so that's another marker. Sedimentation rate. Old, old-fashioned test. So simple. I take a tube of blood with gradation measurements on it, and I wait one hour, and I come back and look at the... Look at the tube again. And the clear plasma, the, the liquid in your blood, separates out from the red blood cells as red blood cells settle. But red blood cells should not settle. Why shouldn't they settle? They, everybody would think, hey, if they're, they're physical things you can see under a microscope very easily, uh, gravity's pulling on them, right? So why don't they settle? Well, every cell in your body is a little battery. And in a red blood cell, that battery, uh, the sodium-potassium pump, will create a little charge on the outside of that membrane, and these cells will literally literally repel each other so they don't settle. 
Now, that's clearly what you want in your circulatory system. You don't want blood cells clumping and clotting and creating a blockage. When you have a big blockage, and it creates an event that's called ischemia, an ischemic event where there's a blockage. Well, if your sed rate is elevated, you're much more likely to have an ischemic event. But what it more importantly means is you have inflammation, your batteries in your cells are discharged, and what I find is that an elevated ESR, erythrocyte sedimentation rate, is highly correlated to, the, to where you are on the gut health continuum because minerals are much harder to absorb than, say, carbohydrates. You have to have good, strong stomach acid and a good microbiome, good, diverse bacterial uh, portfolio in your gut. And if you don't, you could be easily malabsorb, malabsorbing minerals, not to mention the fact that Americans have a very poor uh, nutrient-deficient diet, and really good studies dating back to the early 1900s show that our soils have been relatively depleted of essential nutrients. So we're starting in a deficit, and then absorption is bad, and now your sed rate goes up because you're malabsorbed, um, you're, you're malabsorbing minerals. So, you know, our, hopefully people can remember the frog experiment in junior high school where the frog leg is preserved but separated from the body and you put a little electrodes on it and it twitches. Our entire body is electrical. And ESR is the simplest, not, the, not a perfect way to measure it, but a simple way to measure the electrical system in your body. And it's also a surrogate for blood pH in, in many ways as well. So a very, very, very useful test. And, you know, the standard of care says said rate is normal 40 or 30. Sometimes some reference ranges say 25. Your, your said rate should be two. I have a range of uh, six or below on my scale because I couldn't find mortality studies below six. But healthy people have a said rate of two, not not even four, two. So these are the kinds of things you want to search for. When I, when I measure people, sick people, I would say about 20% of the people I work with have a two. So, um, but highly achievable. You know, the microbiome has been a hot topic now for the last 10, 15 years. And, and really, Tom Barodi out of uh, Australia, the top gastroenterologist in the world, in, in my view, and he's been involved with the open biome project in the United States, you know, fecal transplant says he never thought as a gastroenterologist, he'd be solving such non gastroenterologically related complex diseases. And he says, it's not the amount of bacteria, good bacteria in your gut. It's really the diversity. And I tell people not to take the same probiotics all the time because you're taking a narrow strain and that narrow strain can eventually take over. And, you know, I look at it as Henry Ford, um, the production line. Everybody in that factory has a critical job to get the car going to the end. It's not one person building a car. The same with your microbiome. You want to have that kind of diversity uh, set up in that part of your tissue. Tell me about the triglyceride to HDL ratio and what that tells us. Oh, my goodness, Susan. I can go on for hours on this one, but the 
the orthogenic index of plasma is a measurement that almost any doctor could report, but they don't. And it's, it's hasn't had a lot of publication on it, but Johns Hopkins published in the, in the Mayo Clinic proceedings. And so the orthogenic index of plasma is the log, but you can forget the log, but you know, I'm an MIT guy, so I love my logarithms, but <laughs> it's the log of the triglyceride value divided by the HDL value. And now I'll open up a can of worms with traditional doctors on this one because I have a very different way of interpreting it. I'm actually giving a seminar on it tonight. But uh, triglycerides is a really good surrogate for excess sugars. You know, I see people with glucose of 81, but their triglycerides are 120. You want your triglycerides to be below 80. Now, when you lose weight, it doesn't happen, you know, poof, by, by some miracle. You're, you're, um, you're taking fatty acids that are stored as fat, converting them to trigs, and the trigs are circulated, circulated to tissue cells where they can be converted into a fuel and burned. Okay, so really, triglycerides are a surrogate for excess sugars in your blood when they're elevated. When they're normal, they're, they're a surrogate for good, good blood sugar. So, you know, you can look at that as like an A1C or, or a fasting glucose. The triglycerides is a, is a surrogate for um, carbohydrate consumption, um, low-quality food density, uh, uh, where you have a lot of carbohydrates and sugars. So now we have on the numerator, the top, sugars in our blood. And on the bottom, we have HDL. What is HDL? I will say the word good cholesterol and then slap myself because HDL is high-density lipoprotein and it has nothing to do with cholesterol. It's a lipoprotein, period. A lipoprotein is a molecule that in, encapsulates fats and transports them. And if you use that definition, then you soon realize in the real world that lipoproteins, HDL, LDL, low-density lipoprotein and high-density lipoprotein are soaps, okay? So picture this. Wash your greasy dish with just water. What happens? It's still greasy. Add some detergent. Detergent is soap. The soap has a polar end, a polar outside, and a nonpolar inside. So it grabs the grease encapsulates it, but the polar outside is miscible with water so it can flow down your drain. In your bloodstream, LDL is a soap that transports cholesterol, vitamin A, vitamin D, all the fat-soluble nutrients, vitamin E, vitamin K1, vitamin K2, EPA, DHA, saturated fats, anything that's valuable to your body will be transported. And if you eat junky oils, then they'll be transported too. But the valuable oils of all type fats are transported by LDL. HDL brings excess fats that aren't used or wasted and spent fats from cellular respiration and cellular processes back to the kidneys and liver for either reprocessing or disposal. So in my view, your HDL level is really a measure 
of your sufficiency in fats essential to your health. Okay? So the AIP, the arthrogenic index of plasma, highly correlated to cancer risk at greater than 2.5, highly correlated to cardiovascular risk, is simply a measure of excess sugars divided by fat insufficiency. It's, a, it's, that, sim- it's that simple. Okay. Um, it, well, interesting about your uh, your approach is you look at the baseline risk factors, what we're doing. Then we look at these measurements, what is our temperature and health. But then you look at pathology. So I would like to address your, your use of the eye, which has excellent access to vascular neurological tissue. And after that, I would like to discuss some of the things that you've been working on COVID, which are very interesting as well. So can you go on, tell us about all the work you've been doing with the eye, which certainly is a window into the vascular and neurological issues. Right. I'll give a, I'll give a speed, uh, I'll give a speed essay on the eye, but basically my mentor at Harvard is an ophthalmologist at Scapin's Research. So he's a researcher and Scapin's Retina Associates, which was a clinical um, delivery channel at Harvard Medical School teaching hospital for eye care. And and Dr. Trump gave up traditional ophthalmology in 1980 because he was seeing a profound connection between eye diseases, common eye diseases, and systemic diseases and early death in his patients. So he really threw away a very lucrative career and went into better patient care as an ophthalmologist. And he taught me everything I know, and I wish I knew one one hundredth of what he knew um, when he retired. But the the point is, the eye is an outcropping of the brain. You can see through it; it's transparent. And the brain is the second most vascular um, metabolic tissue in the body. Uh, it the carotid arteries supporting the brain bring twenty five percent of the oxygenated blood that leaves the heart at any given time. And it's only two and a half percent the mass of the body. So the brain is 10 times more metabolic than the average tissue in the rest of the body. There's only one tissue more metabolic than that. And that's the vascular tissue lying right underneath the retina. So if you want to study cause and effect, and you also have two eyes. So a lot of times you get an eye disease in one, and over time, it'll go into the second. You only have one brain. So the eye is actually a better way to track disease, and that's what he did over a 47-year career. But I'm just going to make some very you know, profound statements based on you know, common knowledge uh, or lack of con- common knowledge in this space. But a cataract, a nuclear cataract, the number one surgery in the world, the reason why you do surgery is because you have an opacity. You can't see. Your central vision's lost. So they pull out the cataract. That's okay. But the formation of the cataract is highly correlated with early mortality. Sudden death and early death from cardiovascular diseases. Yes, a cataract is a barometer in many, many, many cases, most cases, for cardiovascular disease. And the mortality rate for cataract is about the same as breast cancer. If you find early breast cancer and early cataract, their six-year mortality is about the same. Um, you know, it's 90% survival, but you know, it's, it's, it's a very high, very high mortality rate compared to people without the disease. So that's cataract, nuclear cataract, 
highly correlated to cardiovascular disease and highly correlated to early, early mortality. You don't want to be 60 years old with a cataract. If you're 100, you made it. Don't worry about it. But if you're 60, it's a problem. Now, cortical cataracts that no one's talking about was first published as a marker for Alzheimer's in 2003 by Harvard Medical School. Now, why they don't measure people for cortical cataracts, I don't know. They've tried to profit by making a machine, and they've been unsuccessful. But supranuclear or cortical cataracts are the beta-142 of the amyloid plaque of the Alzheimer's brain. So if you have cortical cataracts, you are on the Alzheimer's path. And when I say you are, I mean with a high, high degree of probability. Now, macular degeneration, you have a wet form and a dry form, but both forms, one is exactly the same as an arthrosclerotic vascular plaque, and then the bleeding form of wet age-related, so the wet age-related macular degeneration is a vulnerable plaque that has hemorrhaged, okay? So that vessel in the back of the back of the eye is so weak, it's just exuding blood. God help you, it's not happening in your brain too. But when when you look at studies of people with Alzheimer's when they get an MRI, they already have multiple, on average, multiple micro or mini infarcts, so small stroke that the person, the patient, never even felt. But that's what's contributing to their. Um, their dementia, their, their loss of cognition. Um, the, the most important aspect, you know, glaucoma is the degeneration of the retinal ganglial cells, which are a surrogate for the hippocampus. Uh, it's not a disease of increased pressure. It's a disease of inflammation. The pressure is secondary to the inflammation. And there can be optic nerve damage from the pressure, but the real cause of the optic nerve damage is the underlying inflammation and often subacute infection like hemophilia pneumoniae, toxoplasma gondii that are present in this highly vascular tissue, leading yeah, to degradation. You called so we- uh, glaucoma the Alzheimer's. Uh, uh, disease of the eye and Alzheimer's as the glaucoma of the brain. But I'd like to switch to some of your information on COVID since we're running low on time. Uh, In your blogs, you reported uh, people with heart disease and diabetes were hospitalized six times as much and their death rate was much higher. And you referred to a South Korean study that the people with diabetes, high blood temperature, low oxygen saturation, pre-existing cardiac injury were prognostic factors of severe COVID-19. So what, um, what do you think, the, uh, who is susceptible to bad COVID outcomes? Well, we actually, we actually published a paper on this, and it was published, uh, I think, in June or July. And it's uh, you know, titled um, A Cytokine Storm and Pre-Cytokine Storm Status in COVID-19 as a predictor of poor poor outcomes in COVID-19 and also chronic disease. So what we're basically saying is that if you take a person who's healthy and a a person who has cardiovascular disease, the difference in mortality is 1,200% in COVID-19, okay? Now, if you look at what the, what the heck is heart disease, because today you might have two people with heart disease, one's going to die tomorrow, 
and one's going to live into their 90s. So it becomes a bit of a conundrum as to this amorphous diagnosis of cardiovascular disease. But what it really is, it's, it's a, um, a measure. What really determines your risk are the underlying inflammatory markers. So you, you die from COVID from the infection, but it's a bradykinin or cytokine storm at the end where your inflammatory markers have gone sky high. So really, when you look at this, it fits perfectly with the continuum theory that I espoused. So where are you on the COVID-19 continuum? Okay. The higher your, what they call pre-existing, pre-treatment inflammatory markers are, like sed rate, like lowered lymphocytes, which go down with, it, with virus, like C-reactive protein, fibrinogen, LDH, uh, creatine kinase, repair markers. The further up that continuum you already are when you go into the hospital, the less likely you are to leave the hospital. Okay? You're more likely to die. And the interesting thing is, you know, we say, I say there's four mechanisms for disease. The, uh, the FDA says there's 69,000 ICD-10 codes. Four mechanisms versus 69,000 codes. That system's designed to have a drug for every code. My system is here to explain that the risk factors for diabetes, cancer, heart disease, autoimmune disease, Alzheimer's, all overlap. And the same immune markers show up over and over again. Elevated white blood cell counts. One we didn't talk about, Susan, my... my uh, one of my top three is the neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio. What's that? White blood cell count with differential. Take the absolute neutrophils, divide it by the absolute lymphocytes. And even Harvard Medical School, Dana-Farber, is talking about mortality risk in cancer from chemo with a high neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio. And a neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio, as far as I'm concerned, anybody listening, is completely under your control manageable. Yet, your NLR is over four or five, you go in for chemo, you're dying, okay, with very high statistical probability. You go into the hospital for COVID, and your neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio is high, God help you. Because neutrophils go up with bacterial um, burden in your body, lymphocytes go down with viral burden in general. So the neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio is an amplification of your infectious burden um, today, right now. And then you get COVID on top of that, and now you're fighting um, a war in, internally on all four fronts. Well, and I've got three the more likelihood questions. of you winning that battle is low. I've got three more questions. You, this, uh, First one is that you divided uh, COVID into two different types, lung or blood disease. The second question is, oh, what do we do? How not to die from COVID? And the other last question is, why do we have such a high rate of premature births, double what they have in Europe? Oh, okay, all great questions. But, you know, the, the, the virus, Charles Mayo and Frank Billings forwarded this theory um, 100 years ago, and it has been known for a long time, the concept of focal infection. So, Infections like the flu, okay, and COVID's kind of a flu, can be systemic. That means in every tissue, and we're finding COVID in, in every tissue. But we also see the concept of focal infection where 
specific vulnerabilities in your terrain, in your body, can lead to an exacerbation of symptoms in that specific tissue. Now, the early studies from China showed that maybe the COVID could displace um, iron and, and heme. That, I really haven't followed that that much because I'm re- more focused on helping people prevent rather than people that are in the hospital. I think there's a lot of good interventions that maybe aren't as, as mainstream. But my whole thing is a mask is a 2% risk, uh, um, protection factor because, you know, sloppy use, whatever. The 2019-20 vaccine for the flu was only 45% effective, and we're relying on that with early data. That probably is not accurate. But going from unhealthy to healthy can reduce your risk by 95%. And so that's been the total emphasis of what, what we've been doing. And, and premature birth, you know, in America, San Diego County was bragging because they went from like 12.5 to 11.8. But the European nations are around six and a half. Why? Uh, a very good study out of the University of Arizona says that poor oral hygiene, that bacteria, once again, char- citing Charles Mayo, the founder of the Mayo Clinic, can leave the oral compartment because it's in the gums, it's causing bleeding gums, it's in the vasculature, get into the placenta, and then your brain sees that placenta as potentially that, that developing fetus is potentially unviable um, because of the poor environment down there. And, you know, sometimes it can be a stillbirth, um, but when you have premature births going up, the, the potential for stillbirths are, are much higher as well. So inflammation in the placenta and P. gingivalis and other periodontal uh, infections, that, that's why we do the oral DNA test on almost everybody because people think, oh, my teeth are fine, but the oral DNA test reveals um, periodontal infection in many, many people who claim they don't have bleeding gums. So, um, but that's that's just another infection that makes you more vulnerable to COVID as well. You know, there's a reason behind. Yeah, there's a uh, reason we've got behind everything. two minutes left, and I love that. Uh, like uh, one of the themes of this show is to look underneath the hood and see what's going on and causing. Uh, our path toward chronic diseases. So I love that. In the last two two minutes, uh, would anything you'd like to say, or how people get a hold of you, or how people get this te- these tests and this um, insight? Right. I'm you know I'm delighted to be part of this. The the name of my company is Health Revival Partners with an S. So Health Revival Partners with an S. And I'm accessible through that website. And what we try to do is we try to make it economical. Uh, And so people can come in and just get their subjective risk, their life risk test. It's an online survey. takes about a half hour because we go into details. And when you're done with that, you'll get yourself your letter grade for your risks and then we do a, a one-hour consult to try to bring everything together and do a big picture. Because we don't want to just, like, start off with labs or anything like that. If you want to start off with labs and get your chronic disease temperature, that's great. But I like starting off with the risks because these are generally the modifiable things that we can help you on. And we give you an opportunity to kick the tires for very low cost and um, see if we're a good fit for you and you're a good fit for us. But since 90% of this 
you know, diseases are, are chronic in nature. I think we're a good fit for most people, frankly, um, especially because so many people are walking around and they don't really understand where they are on that health disease continuum. And that's what we, that's what we endeavor to educate people on. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, this is uh, sounds like an excellent program that I want to pursue myself to find out where we are in this uh, chronic disease continuum and uh, what factors uh, we can address the underlying factors to improve our longevity in these challenging times. So discuss this with your friends, do your own research, check with your physician, clinician, and uh, share it. And above all, be well. for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.